Welcome, everybody, to Life Before Medicine. Today, we have the privilege, indeed, it's a tremendous privilege, to talk to Caroline Moassisi, who is an expert in all things related to food allergies. This is an important introduction, but it is cursory, because if all I did was list Caroline's achievements and accomplishments, we would have no time for this podcast. So I'm just going to kind of give you a 30,000 foot view of this amazing, remarkable woman who has been not only an educator with respect to food allergy, in particular with children, but also quite an activist, helping to lobby for legislation that protects children in schools. She has a website you should all check out and is a blogger, The Grateful Foodie. And a, uh, in addition to that, she's presented at the Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Conference multiple times. She's presented to grocery manufacturers. She's been on the news. She is quite accomplished. And this is part one of our series on food allergies. Part two will be an interview with Dr. David Stukas, MD. He's a professor at Ohio State University and, and a uh, professor of clinical pediatrics and um, will give us the medical perspective on this really important issue. So, without further ado, I'm going to let Heather take this away. She's going to interview Caroline, and this is going to be very, very interesting. Good morning, Heather. How are you today? I'm well. How are you, Dr. Crawford? I'm doing great. Heather Dibke, by the way, is my co-host here. Um, she mentioned, I'm Dr. Crawford. I am a board-certified urogynecologist. Heather is an exercise physiologist. And um, why don't you uh, um, go ahead and uh, finish introducing Caroline, and then let's just kind of dive into the questions, some of which have been offered up by our listeners. So we're excited to see what we can learn today. Yes, and I encourage our listeners to reach out with questions because uh, we want to serve you as best we can. Caroline, I am so excited to be talking with you today. Before we get into the topic of food allergies, can you give us just a little bit of information on how you came to become an expert on this topic? Oh, absolutely. But first, thank you and good morning to both of you. I am absolutely thrilled to be on the podcast with you. I always tell everyone, anyone who'll give me time to talk about food allergies, I'm going to take it. And so I'm just very excited to be here. You know, Dr. Crawford said an expert. I think when it comes to food allergies, it's hard to almost say expert because it's forever changing. But I did join this world because of my two young adult kids. They're now 24 and 19. And when my son was two, he was diagnosed with food allergies. So that was 22 years ago. And back then we had dial-up dial internet and it was very hard to get information. So I just so happened to be in the San Francisco Bay Area where I'm from visiting my dad and my husband actually still had his office down there and I went to a lecture about food allergies and when I was there the doctor who was leading the lecture had asked me you know what's your knowledge what do you know and I explained to him I'm really new at this and blah 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 and he said look doctors diagnose but we don't have the time to teach you how to live with this and he said look around this room he goes these women they're going to teach you so I actually went 
back home to my dad's house where we were staying at the time during the visit. And I said, okay, I'm invoking what I call mama veto power, which means I am now making a decision. We are moving back to the Bay area. We're moving in with my dad, poor guy. He had no choice. And I said, we're going to go to this doctor. I'm going to learn from these women. And they were tremendous. They changed everything because as we'll talk about in a couple minutes with food allergies, you manage it by lifestyle. There are no meds to take every day and so forth. So we moved back to the Bay Area for two years. I got great knowledge as part of the support group, was determined to come back to Reno and start a support group up here. But when I arrived back to Reno, I was at a camp with my son for asthma with American Lung Association and Orvis School of Nursing was there. And I told them, you know, I'm going to start this allergy support group and, you know, I'm just going to really dive into this. And they were like, hold up. They're like, start a nonprofit. We're going to help you. We're going to support you. So both American Lung Association and Orvis School of Nursing showed me how to create a nonprofit, gave me space and got me going. And then I met this woman named Grace Moore, who was trying to start a support group too. So we just joined forces. And so the support group kind of grew into a whole advocacy awareness organization. And by then, you know, you're in their hook, line and sinker, you know, you love your kids, you love your community, like you're just done. And so it just began and then it just continued. And even with the legislation, I met with Senator Debbie Smith to ask her about legislation. And she's like, sure, we'll do it together. And I was like, oh, okay, what do you mean by we? And she's like, nope, I'm going <laughs> to teach you how to do this. And so it just snowballs and it just continues to snowball. And so I'm very uh, fortunate. I work for a national Food Allergy Awareness Organization, FACT, and um, I do some temp work at Northwestern University as well in the Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research. So on that note, all my words today are my own. It's my disclaimer to everybody, and I'm not a medical professional. I'm just a mom who got very involved. Just a mom. <laughs> Quite an amazing mom, I might add. So before we get too in-depth about the conversation, I think it's going to be really important to clarify for our listeners, what is the difference between a food allergy and a food intolerance? Okay, this is a great question because the actions you take to avoid food are the same, but the outcomes are highly different. So with a food allergy, it's actually an immune response. So a person eats the food and the protein comes into the body and the immune system goes, whoa, hold up, this is an invader and it engages and it just goes. Now, of course, I'm giving you the lay person description of this. Dr. Stuckus is gonna give you the real good meat, but that's basically what happens. And so when this immune system response, it starts engaging, you know, maybe the, the heart and the cardiovascular system and lungs and different things like that. And it can become potentially fatal within seconds. And so that's what really defines a food, you know, allergy is it can become fatal. It's a protein that goes into the body. The body just goes on to overdrive. And all of a sudden you've gone from eating ice cream to being in an ambulance gasping for air, where with a intolerance, the body can take the food in, but now you've got maybe digestive issues or metabolic issues and fatal is not in that sentence. That's not on the table. You're, you're going to feel bad. I have an actually intolerance to garlic. And let me tell you, it is ugly when oh, that happens. That's a tragedy. 
Exactly. It's like, get out of my way. I need a bathroom. But, you know, with a food allergic reaction, my kids are grabbing their epinephrine auto injectors. We're calling 911. It's a whole different, you know, scenario. And actually, the U.S. Department of Education, the Office of Civil Rights, and the U.S. Department of Justice actually deems a food allergy a disability. Mm -hmm. So that's another big standout difference. So one of our listeners was curious about this. If you have a food intolerance, could it eventually turn into a full-blown food allergy? Well, you know, anyone can develop a food allergy at any time. And actually 50% of the adults with food allergies right now developed it after 18. So basically there's not a pathway that I know of that would take you from food intolerance to food allergy but you can develop an allergy in your 70s. I actually know a friend whose mother got food allergies at 79. So it can happen at any time. And that's why you really do have to stay aware and alert of your body and what's happening. So what would some of the symptoms be that someone might have? Because you, your son was diagnosed at two. What clued you in that he had food allergies? Um, so a food allergic reaction actually involves like the the gut. So like for my son, when he had his first reaction, he threw up, then he developed hives, then he started wheezing, his asthma kicked in, his throat started closing up. It gets very dramatic very quickly and it can happen within minutes or it can happen within hours. And so that's basically the biggest trigger. So like for us, when that happened to my son, I actually called the hospital and at that point because this is 20 years ago they said give him benadryl if you don't see a change in a few minutes bring him in where now the recommendations are if you have a food allergy you should carry at least two epinephrine auto injectors at all times and be ready to give immediately and and it's okay to give it to a lot of people have hesitation but you really don't want them to hesitate because think of it like dominoes right you line them up you know to play with and you tip them and it goes down if you don't catch it early the whole thing goes mm. and so, so you really want to jump in there get that epinephrine quickly is it easy to get these epinephrine injectors, are they as accessible as they should? Because I seem to recall several years ago, someone kind of cornering the market on epi injectors and then raising the price ridiculously high in a seemingly very exploitive way. Are people able to get these as readily as they need to be able to get these? You know, that was a big situation a few years ago. And because we're small business owners and we buy our own insurance, for me, I was spending about 3000 a year buying these for both kids. So you're right. It, the prices jumped up. There was a bit of a monopoly. Now that has changed. And so now people can get them at better prices. There's a company called Kaleo, which makes the AviQ. They actually have a patient program where you can go online. And then all the other brands as well usually have a patient assistance program. So now it's improved massively. And then just one of my favorite websites is called needymeds.org. And it is a fabulous website. You can go on there and you can find sliding scale clinics in your neighborhood. You can find patient assistance programs. You can even find patient advocates there. And so if people really get stuck in trying to find meds, that's where you go. But yeah, that was a big deal case. There's litigation happening right now. So in regards to that's the treatment, God forbid, if you encounter your food allergy, 
are there cures out there? Because I know, you know, you hear so much stuff in the news about, oh, you just need to take this digestive enzyme and then you'll be able to break down whatever it is. What do you have to say in regards to the, can it be cured? Right. So that's a really good question too, because there is no cure. There is absolutely no cure for food allergies right now. There are some treatments out there and there are people claiming you know, take these, we're going to cure your allergies. There are unfortunately doctors out there claiming they can cure a food allergy with certain things, herbs and so forth, but there absolutely is no cure whatsoever out there. There are some treatments taking place right now. One of them is called oral immunotherapy, OIT for short. And this is where in a very uh, supervised medical setting, uh, the allergen is given in these minuscule doses, very thought out. I mean, there's a whole system behind it to a person to try to build up some sustained uh, tolerance to it. But that's in a very tight medical setting where it's done. Lots of current trials have taken place on this, and now they're actually starting to take place, but that is by no means a cure. That is just basically an insurance policy. So if you accidentally get ingestion of something, you don't go straight into anaphylaxis. It buys you a little time. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So what are we looking at as far as statistics? It, It seems like you hear more and more about people with either food allergies or food intolerances. What are the actual numbers? And so right now, one in 13 kids have food allergies and one in 10 adults have food allergies. But what's, oh, it's, it's uh, quite the number actually. And uh, with that of the adults, more than half of them actually think they have food allergies when they don't. And so it's really interesting. There's a huge part of the adult population that thinks they have allergies and they don't. But between 1997 and 2011, the CDC did a study and said that the pediatric population increased by 50%. So it's just growing and growing. We're hearing more about it because we're on the internet. You know, we're talking a lot. I mean, back in the day when my son, you know, developed his food allergies, we had dial up. That was painful. I mean, when I was trying to learn about food allergies, I actually learned about it through just this chance encounter with somebody who knew somebody who had food allergies, who had a binder. And so I met with this woman in Berkeley, California, total stranger with her binder and learned. So now we know more, which is great. But then because we know more too, we have a better understanding of the prevalence, but there's still more studies that need to take place and to go on, but it is absolutely growing. Yeah. What do you think Is it just we're more aware of it or is there something occurring in our environment? Is there any information regarding that? You know, there are a lot of different studies taking place because there's the hygiene hypothesis where we're too clean because it seems that kids who live out on farms don't have as many allergies as kids who live in an urban setting. And so now they're trying to study, are we so clean? Because back in the day, parasites in our body had some jobs to do and did a lot of good work. But now we're super clean. We Purell everything, even before COVID, right? We're Purelling everything. We're cleaning everything. We got wipes. You know, we're all over the place. So they're looking into that 
Because it could it be we're too clean? You know, are there environmental factors going on like pollution? I mean, gosh, our air quality today in Reno, we've got heavy smoke today. You know, are these things impacting it? So it's still the big unknown. Caroline. Well, that'll be really interesting when that comes out. I'm sorry. Do, do we know if breastfed babies are less likely to develop food allergies than babies that are fed formula from very early um, not that we know of. Again, more studies are needed in this area, but they are saying that the breastfeeding doesn't seem to make that big of a difference on it because a lot of people were worried too because like I everything my son is allergic to I ate I mean I ate Thai food like there was no tomorrow and dairy and he's allergic to everything or was allergic. He's actually outgrown, which actually is something good to bring up too, is you can outgrow your allergies as well. So mm. my son outgrew his dairy allergy, some seeds, his egg allergy, all sorts of things. Mm. Interesting. So you can grow into them and get them as an adult and you can grow out of them. Exactly. Um, kind of cruel though, getting them as an adult. Well, yeah. I Yeah. You spend more time as an adult than you do a kid. So, <laughs> so if we're looking at, you know, one of, you know, the things that you talked about is having to have an EpiPen and there are some doctors that are doing in a very clinical setting, low dose exposure. What are mitigation efforts or things that an individual food allergies needs to do intervention wise to prevent exposure? You know, that's the key right there. I mean, because we have no cure, right? We don't have any meds we can take every day. Like at least with asthma, we can take maintenance meds, right? There are no food allergy maintenance meds. And so reducing the risk is huge. And so the first part of that is avoidance. And it's getting a strategy on how to avoid. And it's interesting. It's not a one-size-fits-all situation because there are different factors that go into place. Like my kids have asthma, so that's a comorbidity. So that means if they have a food allergic reaction, it's going to be a little more intense than others. Like for my kids, it goes right to the throat. Their throat just starts closing up. You know, so, so you take some of those things into consideration. You also take other cofactors in, such as uh, menstruation or exhaustion. And scientists and researchers are now discovering there are other things that impact the allergic reaction and the severity of it, because there's no way to predict who's going to have a severe reaction and who's not. And you hear people a lot of times say, oh, you know, I've got a, a peanut allergy, but it's mild. No, absolutely false. There's no science behind that. Mm -hmm. There's no way to prove that. There's just no way to go there. So in mitigating the risk, it's really important to think about these things and then get your strategy for the individual. So if you're a parent or a caregiver, you get the strategy for the child. If you're an adult, you start to get your strategy. And the first thing is, is you want to avoid the allergen. So maybe remove it from your home, check all your beauty products. You know, a lot of oils are used in, in lipsticks and, you know, shampoos and things like that, nut oils. So you want to look at your environment first, remove the allergen as safely as you can from your environment. I have friends who would keep allergens in the home, you know, up on a shelf or maybe in a different shelf in a refrigerator. I'm way too spacey in the morning. I am not a morning person. So <laughs> I kept every allergen out of the house because God only knows what I'd be serving my kids. So that was my strategy. But you want to remove the allergens. Then you need to look at cross contact. And so that's when a food product or, you know, beauty product is made and gets 
contact with the allergen during that process. So like in manufacturing, it could be making a milk chocolate in a factory and then running a dark chocolate through there. Okay, that milk chocolate will never come off that machine. And so that's a cross-contact risk. So you want to read labels extremely well, take a look at the labels. Before we go on, though, we need to talk for a quick sec on the major eight allergens, which are peanuts, tree nuts, dairy, egg, wheat, soy, fish, and that's fin fish, and shellfish. And then sesame is being added now. And it actually did take an act of Congress to add sesame as the ninth major allergen. It actually had to go through Congress to get approved. But starting January 23rd, all products are going to have to include labeling for sesame. And so just talking about labeling and cross-contact, reading a label is really important because that's going to tell you if the item is in there. Now, according to labeling laws, U.S. labeling laws, companies do not have to say if there's a cross-contact risk. So sometimes they'll pick up a package and it'll say may contain, you know, ses or sesame on January 23rd, if not sooner, you know, may contain dairy. And that's voluntary, by the manufacturer. And so it's really important to call the manufacturer and ask questions. So if you see a package and you don't see the, your allergen and you don't see a may contain, well, did the company decide to not put that on there? Is there a risk? Is there not a risk? So really the thing to do is just to call the company up and find out about that. And I'm a stickler on that and I'm very heavy with that. So I do speak to the food industry every year at a food industry summit where people come in from USDA, FDA, ConAgra, Hershey, Mars, all those yummy chocolate companies that I love when they come and bring samples. But all these different people come together and that's something that's discussed and all of these companies say the same thing. It's like if our product says may contain, we actually mean it. Right. So don't eat it because a lot of people do eat it. So right. that's. So, oh, yeah. oh sorry. That, this is a, oh. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask, cause we've talked about this on other podcasts, uh, specifically uh, related to obesity and the potential benefit of observing a whole food diet. Do you find that parents adopt this strategy of, of limiting what's in their home, what they feed their children to whole foods rather than processed foods? Oh, for me personally, absolutely. It is so much easier to reduce the risk. I mean, if you're just buying chicken and just grilling it at home and cooking it at home versus buying a frozen chicken finger that has like 20 different ingredients in it, those are now 20 different times that there could be risk. So absolutely, definitely. I mean, that's my personal opinion, especially for my kids. Yeah, seems like a simple strategy. Right, and there's kind of going back to the mitigating risk. You know, you want to read the labels. You want to reduce that cross-contact in a restaurant or when you're visiting somebody. You want to ask about the food. You want to ask what's in it. Because, again, if you, this is and this sounds kind of harsh, but I would tell my kids and other people, just think of it like anthrax, Right. So is there anthrax over there? Oh, there's anthrax on that table and I'm at this party and that's making me nervous and I'm concentrating on that. Um, you know, I mean, if you just pick something that you really don't like or you really don't want near you or rat poisoning, I always, my kids really hated when I would do that. I'm like, think of it as rat poison, you know, and they'd be like, but really got the point across. I bet. <laughs> so, so mitigating risk is really just staying away from it and communicating too. I think that's something that we miss a lot. 
we don't communicate our health needs and we don't, you know, bring the community into that because, you know, we are a community, right? We're a village. We rely on each other. So those are like, I'd say my, my favorite tools to just mitigate risk. Just talk, read the labels, ask people about it and feel confident in saying no thank you to avoiding something. Right. Well, and I do think, Caroline, probably in large part to people like you that are advocating for it, it does seem like manufacturers of food are starting to take note. I see more and more labels that have, you know, allergens listed on them and things like that. And more and more schools are becoming nut free. Um, So it does seem like the community is starting to take note and society by and large is is doing the same thing. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think some of that's by necessity because in schools, if you're looking at one in 13 kids with food allergies, that's two per classroom. So that's now going to inhibit if you have a pizza party and you have dairy allergic kids. Can you get pizza without dairy? Or maybe there's a better choice to this and, you know, an ice cream party. You know, also it's Mm. estimated that about $4 billion are spent annually on managing food allergies. So it's about $4,000 per family. So, you know, when money talks, we all listen right? So you've got the economic impact on the actual consumer. And now you've got manufacturers going, wait a minute, these people can't buy my goods. And so there is this bigger impact now, you know, where society is listening, because I think one, it's costing money, it's costing time. And then two, with my Pollyanna hat on, (laughs) you know, I'm hoping the compassion in the community just continues to grow and become inclusive, because inclusivity includes people on special diets and health conditions. So what are your current advocacy things that you're working on now. You sounds like you've done a lot with legislation and you speak at food conferences. Is there a new thing that's that you're working on advocacy wise? And well, you know, so for me, you know, cause I'm just so lucky to actually kind of work within this industry. So I just love doing the work that I do with these groups, but outside of that, because, you know, advocate at heart, right. Can't <laughs> not, um, you know, I'd love to do things like this anywhere where we can talk about it, anywhere we where we can normalize it. So like on social media, I love posting tips or I love posting things about, you know, my kids are in college with allergies and, and like that. I try to just keep the conversation uplifted and moving and keeping it very positive because it's very easy to get very negative and dark because a lot of people feel restricted. So like if you have a classroom and you say, okay, we can't have peanuts in here because we've got a young one who doesn't know how to control their food or their lips or their mouth, you know, you know, little guys, they like everything, Um, you know, that will happen in the classroom, right? Well, there'll be a request for maybe no peanuts, but then other parents might get really offended because they want to bring in, you know, peanut allergy. And so I think for me, advocating is letting everyone know, bring your needs to the table, talk it through, find the balance. Like, let's have conversation, let's normalize. But uh, one thing that's near and dear to my heart that's actually coming up very soon is Northwestern University is going to be releasing an airline survey because right now there's very little data about the airlines and allergic reactions in the sky. Because remember how airlines would hand out nuts and all these different kinds of foods. Well, there've been a lot of reactions in the sky, but there hasn't been a lot of recording on it. So Northwestern University now 
in a few weeks is going to be releasing a survey to try to gather this information because it's very fascinating that when there is an allergic reaction in the sky, it's not recorded. So the airlines have certain limitations, I shouldn't say certain limitations, but they have a lot of leeway on what they report and don't report. And so there actually was just an incident not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, where a plane was going from San Francisco to Singapore and it was diverted to Hawaii for 19 hours because there was an allergic reaction on the plane. There was an announcement that there was a medical emergency. Plane was diverted, but then when the reporter from allergic living tried to do the story on it and they reached out to FAA, they found out there was no report of a medical emergency, that the landing was actually deemed a precautionary measure. Unbelievable. You know, I can um, testify to the reality of in-flight allergic disasters. Once flying on a, a Moroccan airline from, to uh, Africa, um, you know, about four hours uh, over the Atlantic, um, they made that announcement. If there's a doctor on board, please see the first class um, flight attendant. And, and it's, you know, all doctors kind of dread that announcement. So I just kind of sat there thinking there's probably a real doctor, a family practice doctor or something. And then they did it again. And they really hit the word any this time. So I'm like, oh, heaven's sake. So I take off my seatbelt and I walk up there and the cockpit door is open and the pilot has his shirt off and his face is as big as a pan and he's gasping. And like, what happened? He ate some seafood salad, apparently. Like, this time it was going to be okay. I, I don't know what he was thinking. And then, you know what? A family practice doctor did show up after the gynecologist. And between the two of us, you know, they have some medical supplies on board, and he was treated, and by the end of the flight, his shirt and tie were back on, and he was saying goodbye to everybody as they got off the plane. But you know what? That's scary. That's scary. And, if, and you do need to protect the passengers, but really protect the pilots, for heaven's sakes, from having this kind of reaction. Oh, that's terrifying. Oh, my goodness. If everyone could see my face, right. I, my mouth is dropping. That is terrifying. And, you know, side note, too, thank God they had some epinephrine on board because that's another problem that's happening right now is the emergency medical kits on the airplane aren't necessarily being refilled. And right. there's, again, another loophole with the FAA on refilling them and so forth. And so there's actually some talk in uh, Congress about what to do about this situation. Well, and, and specifically with regard to FAA regulations, you know, when you give an epi shot to a pudgy 55-year-old man, there's like maybe a what, 1 in 21 in 30 chance you're going to kill him, right? And, and so, you know, these things need to be considered as well. That EpiPen isn't as banal a, tr a treatment, although perhaps life-saving, uh, life um, you know, as adults, especially males that may have a cold heart disease, get older, you know, just putting that out there. Right. No truth to that. I mean, because with epinephrine and people who it's diagnosed for them, use it. You know, there's always this hesitation. Don't use it. It's OK. But, you know, I understand that completely. But wow. What a scary situation. Yeah, indeed. Mm. So, Caroline, are there any anything we haven't covered that you just think we need to before we wrap up the podcast? 
Um, yes, actually, there is something I'd like to <laughs> talk about. And I already mentioned, you know, with my Pollyanna hat on, that I'm hoping compassion grows. Mm. But I really, really do hope that people understand food allergies are a medical condition. Nobody signed up for it. Nobody ordered it up. It's difficult. It's challenging. Nobody wants to be a burden by, you know, asking, what are you serving at the party tonight? Or in, you know, the workplace, you don't want to put a damper on, on the caterer. But, you know, it's a real disease a real condition, I'm sorry, it's a real condition and it's serious and someone could die. And it's really important to be supportive and to also avoid bullying because there's a lot of food allergy bullying out there of children and adults. They say now 35% of all kids have been bullied. And so the problem with the bullying is it's not, not as much as it's annoying, but sometimes that bullying then impacts the person and how they manage themselves. So then they try to mask the allergy and they start taking risks because they don't want to be teased. You know, I've spoken to adults who don't want to bring up their allergy at the workplace because they're getting ribbed about it or teased about it or so forth. And then they start taking risks. So my big request to all of humanity here is have compassion for people with food allergies and actually have compassion for anyone that has a health condition. If they're bringing it up, it's serious to them. Yeah. So support Amen. Them. Thank you for that. You know what I always tell my kids, you know, we're all going to end up with something in life. Some people get that something earlier than others. So you don't know what the other person is going through. And it, I think you said it. We just have to be compassionate and live in community with each other. Hey, Caroline, how can people follow your work? How can they um, benefit from your blogging and your incredible knowledge base? How can they uh, uh, kind of keep track of everything you're doing for the uh, food allergic child? Uh, you know, Visit my blog site, it's gratefulfoodie.com. And then on social media, that's also my handle at gratefulfoodie.com or not .com, I'm sorry, just at Grateful Foodie. And just follow me. You know, one of the things I try to do is just send everybody to good medically vetted uh, avenues, medically vetted resources. I'm a real stickler on that. It's got to have science, got to have medicine behind it. So if you do come visit me, you might see something where I'm saying, hey, go over to the FACT website. They have this great information about, you know, civil rights and 504 plans and your rights or, you know, head over to this other website because they have some killer recipes that oh. I just love because, you know, I just love to talk about it all. So yeah, just Go to the website, follow me on social media, and, and just look around, too. Type in food allergies. If you know someone and you love someone who has food allergies, be proactive. Grateful foodie. Got it. Got it. And Got I it. will include that in our description of our talk so that people can find you easily. Thank you. Well, I appreciate both of you for helping raise awareness. Well, it Thank has you been so much for coming on. This was a great talk. It has been outstanding what a valuable edition of life before medicine we are going to wrap things up now but stay tuned for part two with dr david stukas that's coming up in about a week and we'll be in touch you be in touch too thank you heather thank you caroline i'm dr bruce crawford we look forward to being with you again soon